0: Welcome to episode 557 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature New York City director, writer, cabaret critic, and activist, regular contributor, I'm happy to say, from his place in Harlem, New York, Jerry Geddes. We discuss his recent trip to California, directing Tawanda, Lena Horne. His memoir, just published in November, titled Didn't I Ever Tell You This? The Gay Movement, New York City's Gay Switchboard. The Public Theater. Working with James Earl Jones, Meatloaf, Raul Julia, King Lear, Sarah Vaughn, his life partner, the Jeffersons, working with cabaret people, Ed Koch being gay, interracial relations, white privilege, bleaker, to Bourbon Street, among other things. A grand conversation with Jerry Geddes this go-round. We also have an E.W. Poetic piece titled The Seasons. And of course, all of this will be infused, imbued, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 557 of... Troubadours and Rotan Tours.
1: E proprio vero che adesso va di moda nuovamente questo sound all'italiana, la musica italiana.
0: Jerry Geddes, is that you? It is me.
2: Belated Happy New Year in person, kind of.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, a little, yes. where I'm at right now, overcast and uh, snowy, but uh, nonetheless, it's still 2024, first time we've spoken. Uh, yes. And uh, Happy New Year to you as well. You have a lot of cool stuff coming up um, this year.
2: Yes, yes to 2023 was very good to me after a couple of years that weren't, but yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Before we get going, let me uh, share with the listeners who we have here today. A regular contributor, uh, Jerry Geddes is out of Harlem, New York at present. He's a New York City director, writer, cabaret critic, and activist. Also, he's just published his first memoir titled... Didn't I ever tell you this? And uh, it just came out a few months ago, and we're going to talk about that largely. But first, how were your holidays?
2: Low-key, which is how I like them.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Spent, that... spent dead times with friends and seeing singers and shows.
0: Did you stay in the city?
2: I did stay in the city, yes. yes. The week before, I flew out to uh, a mutual friend of ours. Tawanda in L.A. and directed her in a new show that I've written for her.
0: Oh, man. Uh, that sounds really exciting.
2: It was, uh, we videotaped it to use as a tool for bookers and promoters and things. So we're hoping that things will happen with it. She was extraordinary, as she always is. It's a tribute to Lena Horne, and we're very excited about
0: it. Wow. And how, did, I, you know, I, I don't recall how you and Tawanda cross paths. I mean, she's, she's a kid compared to you and me. You know, rel- Oh, completely,
2: yes, yes, yes.
0: How did you guys cross paths? Because she's also from the West Coast, as you just mentioned. I,
2: she made her debut in New York at Birdland, and I reviewed her. And I got the committee for the Bistro Awards, which is the website for which I review, to come to see her. And we ended up awarding her the Outstanding Jazz Vocalist Perform- uh, Bistro Award last year. And through that, I got to know the uh, owner of her record label and producer, And he asked me to get involved in writing something for her tribute show. So when I thought of her in her beauty and her talent, Lena Horne would be the perfect person for her to do a tribute to. And So I wrote something and it's up on its feet and has wonderful musicians and her great performing at the center of it. And it's uh, moving along well, which is one of the exciting things about last year for me is getting to do
0: that. I should mention her full name. It's Tawanda Susbrick Shoakim. Yes, it is, and uh, she
2: tends to go by just Tawanda professionally, which is why I tend to just say Tawanda. But
0: well, I'm, I'm just proud that I could say her name. It took me a while to. You yes,
2: say it very well. You we say it. Very
0: well. <laughs> she helped me. She helped me when I talked <laughs> with her on the show. So when you say you wrote something for her, would it's, it's a, a tribute, I guess, to Lena Horne. It's a,
2: tri- it's a tribute, but it's got. Uh, text as well as songs, so it talks about her life, and at some points, Tawanda actually becomes Lena on stage.
0: Wow, this could be uh, Broadway. Well,
2: knock wood, but who knows? I don't want to say anything to jinx it this early in the process, but that's certainly in my head, theatrical at least, if not Broadway, yes.
0: Right, I mean, I know you prefer i guess i don't know correct me i'm sure you will if i'm inaccurate here you prefer the more intimate setting of a cabaret uh i uh, but for for some uh, productions it, is this something that you think uh is more a cabaret show or is this something that could be built
2: no i think built more uh first of all it's it's jazz initially more than cabaret which is a discussion or debate we could have at another show, um, <laughs> but um, my thoughts were theatrical with this from the beginning. Excellent, because Excellent. she she can handle herself when not singing on stage as well. So it's an interesting
0: well project
2: keep, that I'm very excited about.
0: You'll keep us you'll keep us posted on that. As you said, we could talk about that in the will. future. We it could will. talk about jazz versus cabaret and all yes. of that. Um, but uh, right now, I I know one of the main things that you're excited about and you want to get the word out about, and so are we here at Troubadours and Tours. is the memoir I mentioned. Yes. Didn't I ever tell you this? Now, that was just published at the end of 2023, correct?
2: In November, yes.
0: And uh, it goes back how far? I mean, it, it uh, to your become- childhood?
2: Well, the initial chapter is a setup of my childhood leading up to me coming to New York City, but the book mainly is from 1967 to 1995 of my life in New York City.
0: 67 to 95. I so,
2: came to Columbia University in 67. So.
0: And originally from New England?
2: New Hampshire, yes.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: Manchester, which is the largest city in New Hampshire, but it's a small town. <laughs> particularly compared to New York City.
0: And what are some of the underlining themes of of this memoir?
2: Well, because it it was a time of so much upheaval and change and turmoil and progress, actually, that it covers quite a bit. When I got to Columbia, it was the anti-Vietnam War movement and the takeover of the buildings by the students and the police in combat gear coming onto campus and growing out of that, the political movement that turned into the gay movement. And uh, I was involved with a number of things there, including um, creating the first New York City gay switchboard back in pre-computer days uh, to handle everything from what's a new bar that I can go to, to I'm I'm feeling suicidal because my family threw me out. So it, it ran the gamut of the possibilities of that time. How did that work? Uh, We I actually was uh, with a group of friends and we decided that we needed something to help the situation of of so many kids that we knew and heard about that were literally thrown out and homeless for this happening. And uh, also just any um, political or social injustice that people were feeling. There was no outlet at that point to get advice or get encouragement or just have a shoulder to cry on. And so we had heard that in San Francisco, someone had started a switchboard. We thought it was a great idea. So we got a store uh, owner to volunteer some space above his store and we put in six phones and the six of us started and then other people volunteered to do it as well. And we trained with the police and psychologists and psychiatrists to, to prepare for this and also amassed, a great amount of information on just places and people and things in New York that would be either helpful or entertaining for the gay population. And we became a kind of website before there was a website, but using dial-up phones instead. And uh, it was quite successful. And we, the second or third gay pride march, we marched under a banner of of our gay switchboard.
0: And this was and, the and, end of the 60s, early 70s?
2: Yes, it was early 70s, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. My yeah. my uh, compliments and my hats off to you. That's a, a huge community service.
2: Yes, it was at the time for sure, and I'm very proud of it. Yes.
0: Did you ever, you know, I just recently had on the program uh, Dustin Pittman, and he was talking about uh, the same time period and being in New York City at Stonewall and, and uh, documenting a lot of what occurred with his camera. You know, Dustin Pop, yes. he, he's known by. Did you guys ever work together?
2: No, I know his name, but I don't, I don't, and I've listened to the program, but no, I didn't.
0: Yeah, you, it. It, it, it seems, you know, New York City at that point, maybe second to San Fran, I don't know, you would know better than me, of course, uh, was more ahead of the curve regarding how LGBTQ uh, communities were, were treated and, and were, were taken care of. Would you say that's pretty accurate? It's true.
2: Uh, there was a big difference. So that San Francisco literally had a community. But New York is so sprawling and so many, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, classes within the gay community that it never became a solid support community the way San Francisco did. It was just too too many people and too broad a geographical scope, if nothing else. that uh, Plus, there were people who thought that they were comfortable in New York, and so everybody should be and didn't care, which is always the case, I guess, in the world. But um, it was second to San Francisco as far as awareness and and progress and pushing for progress, I would say, yes.
0: So at this point in time, you were in your 20s, I, I, I'm guessing?
2: Yes. Uh, I, well, I came here at 17, 18 to go to Columbia, so this was three or four years after that, so yes, very early 20s. And then, um, at the same time as the uh, gay revolution was going on, I was starting to work at the public theater and getting into theater and music, and so the, the, the two worlds paralleled and collapsed into each other. So the the book does the same, and I'm I, you know partially talking about the gay switchboard, Russell, partially talking about working with James O. Jones and people like that at the public theater and moving into directing and working with singers as well.
0: Is that what you studied at Columbia? Theater?
2: No. um, Back in those days, it may still be true, but back in those days for sure, talking about in New Hampshire about wanting to work in film, theater, or anything in the entertainment world, it was always, the response was always, well, that's for other people. You need something to fall back on because you're not going to make it in that world. Uh, And so I studied urban studies, which was of great interest to me at the time and there were some of the leading thinkers on the subject at Columbia. So I enjoyed studying it a lot, but I took a year off and worked in actual urban renewal in New Hampshire in my hometown, uh, to get some practical experience with it. And I realized that even in Manchester, a small town, the red political red tape was so obstructive that I could never do it in New York. And I knew I was never going to move back to New Hampshire. I was going to stay in New York. So I didn't keep my interest going in that. And at the time, the I was on full scholarship at Columbia. And the scholarships were provided by previous classes that had gone, gone on to bigger and better things after having gone to Columbia. And mine, I believe, was the class of 1939 that wow. had prom- given the money for me. And they were so turned off by the political bent of Colombia at the time that they withdrew all their money, and so the administration sat me down and said, "You know, we don't have money to continue the scholarship. You can take out a loan for your final year if you want." And I sat down after having this experience in New Hampshire and thought, "It's not worth going into this much debt." Even at that time, it was huge debt to to continue something I know I'm not going to do. So um, as things turned out, some friends had friends at the public theater and said, we know of a job opening. Do you want to talk to our friend?" So we, I went and got the job as a prop crew person. And then about six months later, became a stage manager and did that for a number of years.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize stage manager at the public theater. So,
2: yes. At the time of a chorus line, I didn't get to work on a chorus line, but I got to sit on the steps and watch it whenever I had free time. Wow. So it was a very, it was a very, um, creative, apex of, of New York theater actually at that point. so
0: yeah yeah that must have been inspiring and also I'm sure you learned a lot.
2: Yes and, and a lot of the, I met a lot of people who went on to fame or were famous already and they're they're featured in the stories about my relationship with them is featured in the book. I've, I worked on a musical by uh, the composer Jim Steinman mm-hmm. who wrote Bad out of Hell and it actually introduced Meatloaf to the world of New York. And my favorite story of that time is that when the New York Times reviewed the musical, they referred to him as Mr. Loaf throughout
0: the <laughs>
2: throughout the review.
0: So Jim Steinman and, and Meatloaf are the same person?
2: No, no. Jim Steinman wrote all of Meatloaf's big hits. There you go. And I, was, I tell the story of them meeting at the audition for the show, which I was reading with people when they were auditioning and then a few years later sitting at Meadowlands in New Jersey watching thousands and thousands of people cheer for meatloaf as I sat next to Jim Steinman mouthing the words to his songs that were being sung on stage.
0: Oh, man. So, well, did, did he take you as a, as a friend, or did you guys just... Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, we, we became friends, yeah. yeah.
0: And and the show that they met at again was... It was
2: called More Than You Deserve. It was a a rock and roll retelling of South Pacific set in Vietnam. Wow. And as surreal as that sounds, it was more so on stage. <laughs> so it was ahead of its time theatrically, and a lot of the staid and tried and true New York theater community didn't quite get what was going on.
0: And what would you think about Mr. Loaf? Because towards the end of his life, he got pretty conservative, it seems. Was, did you get that uh, sense of him I, back I, then?
2: We, we lost track over time, uh, part, maybe because of that, partially. But yeah, he did seem to settle into that, I think it's probably that trap of becoming financially mobile and moving up in class and letting it affect personal and selfish concerns, affect previously rock and roll counterculture feelings.
0: Right, right. Did you notice I said Mr. Love? Yes, you did. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to it, I, I still I don't hear it the way other people hear that, but yes.
0: <laughs> So, uh, what what other uh, what other uh, names do you want to mention uh, from that time period? Uh, people that you crossed.
2: Well, I, it's, it's, it's some of the book. It almost like is like I'm Zelig from the Woody Allen movie. I where love that movie. I'm standing in a corner, and there's six major players in the New York theater world and theater history sitting around talking, and I'm just taking it all in like a spun from the corner of the green room. But. Um, I became friends and worked with Raul Julia quite a bit. Wow.
0: He it passed away just that... a few years ago, right?
2: Yes. Yes, it was a great loss. He had cancer, but uh, he was he was a magnificent performer. When I first, I worked with, the first show I worked on was Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was a musical that went on to win a Tony Award over Follies, which I, still bewilders me. But...
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: uh but at the time it was it was a big smash and he was great in it but I I told him at one point having dinner that I wanted him to do every shakespeare play just so I could hear his voice wrap around the words of every play that he did but, and I ended up working on uh King Lear with him and with James Earl Jones as Lear wow in central park and it was spectacular
0: when you say were you uh what, what was your capacity in that production when you worked stage, man- stage manager stage manager stage yeah. manager Wow, just right there is is tons uh, uh, that would be interesting for anyone to read about in your memoir. Didn't I ever yeah. tell you this? I know you eventually move on to uh, a, a great relationship and I this is something that I'm uh, so excited to, to to think about that a guy I know was friends with Sarah, Sarah Vaughan um,
2: yes she's she's present in the book quite a bit, yes.
0: And was that around the same period or is that later?
2: Um, a bit later, but uh, I really began writing, which is the connection that I made with people who knew Sarah, which is how I became friends with her. Uh, as I was ending the, the career in theater and moving on, because uh, it just wasn't consistent. So I would have, you know, I'd work on a great play and then be unemployed for three or four months. So it was difficult to establish even an apartment of my own, let alone anything else on that kind of uneven and, and unsteady income. So I work, went on to actually manage a bookstore for quite a while. But I, at that time, I began writing and working in the theater and cabaret and jazz community on the creative capacity rather than the stage manager capacity. And through a friend, I, I met Sarah and we became friends, not, not close friends, but friends. And we hung out a lot and have great stories about her.
0: Now, what bookstore did you manage, and where was that, what part of uh, the, the...
2: Well, I did, there were two. The first one was in Herald Square, kind of diagonally across from Macy's. Uh, it was called Laurel Book Center, but then I went on to one called The Bookstore, which is at the bottom of the Channon Building, which is across from Grand Central Station.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was a small-town bookstore in the middle of Manhattan, and I loved it. I worked there for many years and had a clientele that would come in and say, what should I read now? And I got to suggest books. and I'm an avid reader along with everything else. And so it was a great outlet for that for me.
0: And at that point, what, uh, borough were you living in? And this is, I mean, when you first moved Man-
2: living, uh, I was living on the upper East side of Manhattan, ninth street and second Avenue.
0: Nice neighborhood.
2: And, uh, yes, very nice. As a matter of fact, when we went, I, I went with my partner, i, I I always hesitate when I'm going to say partner or boyfriend or life partner because we weren't able to marry back then. He would have been my husband had he, had things been different at that point. Uh, but um, we, as we were walking down 86th Street to turn to get to look at the apartment, we passed the building where uh, the Jeffersons was filmed.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh,
2: and so as we walked down the street, we both started singing, moving on up to the east side. <laughs> <laughs> the theme from the Jeffersons, and we walked into the apartment and it was gorgeous and had a, a duplex with a spiral staircase, exposed brick walls. And we said, all right, take us back. We're going to sign the papers now because someone's going to grab this. And we and it became our home. And I stayed there for 35 years. Actually,
0: The, the same building that the Jefferson's was uh, supposedly. No, not in?
2: that. No, it, that was on 86th Street, the main drag of the area. But I, I, we were three blocks north. But we walked by the building and said, oh, we're moving into this neighborhood
0: now. So and what what uh, what was your great love's name?
2: Frank Chaplin.
0: Frank Chaplin, yeah.
2: And he, he's the, the second part of the book is after I meet him in our life together coinciding with working with cabaret people and and developing songwriting and and playwriting and directing and all of that happening. The great thing about New York is one can do that without while still doing other things and get to do it on a stage and not just dream about it. You Why, can call three friends and put a show together and go into a cabaret and do it. That, yeah. And so that was amazing to me.
0: Do you think so, it's yeah. that still that way now or is it much different? It is that
2: way now, but um, the there are no places that were destinations now as they were in the past or a couple maybe my my favorite place in the city is called Pangaea on the Lower East Side, and it, con- it continues that. But it used to be you would go to a club, and you, even if you didn't know who was performing that night, you'd be reasonably assured of at least seeing something of value, if not absolutely loving what you're seeing. You wouldn't want to run out of the room. But now, if someone can guarantee a full house, the quality isn't important to most of the club owners. And it's a sad situation. but
0: Economics. Rather than yes,
2: it's all economics yeah. more than art, for sure. Yes. Yeah
0: that that is it's a disease that's you know sort of running across the the globe. Oh uh, yeah,
2: it's not only cabaret; it's it's the arts in general and the life in general, actually. So
0: yeah, so you know when I when I think about uh, anybody sitting back and writing about their lives, uh, there must be a lot of heartwarming moments. There must also be a lot of heartbreaking moments and, and also a sense of your, your journey and, and who you are and what the world is. Uh, did any of that occur to you? Any of that happened to you while you were writing? It You're- did.
2: When, when I started, I've, I'll briefly, I think I've told this story in length in another interview with you, but um, I had a friend who was my first friend at Columbia university who went, to Roger, went back to his hometown in Rochester, bought a theater, and became a kind of avant-garde theater producer, writer, performer. And I was unemployed at some point right before, a bit before COVID, and he knew about it because we had talked about it on the phone. And I got a letter, and out of the letter a check fell. And in the letter he said, I've been supporting artists in Rochester for quite a while. It only seems natural that I would want to support you while you're unemployed. So if you promise me that you will write your memoir and let me know what your life has been like since I left Columbia, I will pay you a check every week. And so for two months, every week, I got a check from him and I sat home and wrote for eight hours a day. So I had a patron like out of medieval times in my life. And it was amazing. And, and the book is dedicated to him and a couple of other friends. But
0: what was his he name? He
2: passed. Before John Borick. He passed before the book was published, but he did get to read the first draft. So I was pleased with that. And it made him very happy. So,
0: That is fantastic. Uh, and
2: then with, with my partner, Frank, uh, we were... At the, the book evolved as the world evolved and New York evolved into a, comments on the AIDS crisis as well because it ravaged the community so tremendously. And uh, eventually my partner... Succumbed to it. And so it becomes very personal and political in the second half of the book, dealing with that on a very personal level, but also on the political and the public level as well. And it, I have read a lot of books and articles about it, but there was a perspective that I thought was lacking of just being on the streets at the time that it happened. And I wanted to have that happen in the book as well.
0: What, um, what was it like on the streets when, when uh, the AIDS crisis was occurring, in a few words? It was,
2: it was devastating. <clears throat> First of all, I remember having a conversation with my parents who were not sympathetic to the situation, but saying, I have been at my young age to maybe 10 times more funerals and memorials than you've gone to in both of your lives. And that kind of ever-present loss and ever-present pain defined the generation at that point and it was hard to retain any kind of optimism about the situation when you had politicians who wouldn't even say the word aids and a mayor of new york who was turning down money in fear of becoming being called gay himself so people were dying because of his closeted fear was he gay ed koch yes And he refused. He wouldn't. He he would down millions. And so many people died because he turned down funds because he thought it would be implying that he was too sympathetic to the gay community. Wow.
0: Well, he's a politician.
2: We had Ronald Reagan, who took years and years and years to even say the word.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, no matter what. I'm sorry. What was that?
2: No, it was an infuriating time.
0: And if, yeah, it's it must have been. Uh how were your parents uh, did they uh accept you for who you are?
2: No, no. And that's part of the book as well. it's it's a it's a symptom of the times that I had to deal with personally. Uh from both my partner's family here in New York and my family in New Hampshire. I was pretty much disowned. Um
0: was there if i recall correctly because we've you know we've spoken yeah. several times your uh, partner was yes. uh frank he was an african american male right yes was there were, was there any sort of racism that occurred too in in the community like why are you dating a black dude or what maybe to him why are you dating a white dude
2: well i'm sure his family felt that as did mine uh i remember Frank wanted to meet my family and I didn't think it was a great idea, but he finally cajoled me into bringing him home for a weekend. But before, when I called my family, I said, uh, hypothetically, I'm going to ask you this question. Would you rather I came home with a black woman or a white man?
0: Wow. What a question.
2: (laughs) And they literally waited and talked to me the next day and said, we decided a black woman. And I said, well, you're going to get half your wish.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was an interesting approach. I, I, you know, <laughs> that was that must have, like, twisted their minds in a way. Uh, but, the, you know, it's... But, but the,
2: they, my parents, uh, of that generation, of their siblings, were the most human of them all and, and would have been the ones I chose just socially and politically, even though that's not a compliment to their s- social outlook or politics. But...
0: Relatively speaking, they weren't bad.
2: Situationally, they were not racist. They dealt with Frank perfectly, normally, and well. But then at this table, having dinner with the two of us, they would say things like, well, you know, those people are lazy. Oh, boy. And, you know, so it didn't occur to them that this nice man sitting next to them and talking to them was part of who they were expressing hate and ignorance about. It, it just it, that connect never happened. And I'm sure there were a lot of people at the time that felt that way. But I, I just, even I, now, I mean, I, I, there are probably a lot of people who feel that way.
0: Feel what way? That
2: that one on one things are fine, but as a political group, they're racist.
0: Right, right, and it's all, it's that's even more insulting, you know. Like, no, you're good. Oh, it is. But everybody is. that you're, you come from, you're one of the
2: good. You're one of the good
0: ones. Yeah, yes. you're a credit yeah. to your whatever, you know. Yes. Yeah. So insulting and condescending, you know it. I, I, I but look at it, the
2: same time. At the same time, in at, in the in those days, if you saw a black man and a black and a white man walking down the street, just walking, talking, generally you could assume they were gay. Really? Because New York and and everywhere was so segregated mentally and even geographically that the gay bar tended to be the great equalizer. That there could be someone from Wall Street and someone who was a trash collector and someone who was an author and someone who was homeless in a gay bar. And you wouldn't know. And so people would make relationships on a whole other level. So that the the idea of an interracial couple was much more prevalent in the gay community than the straight community back then in the 60s and 70s.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me because, I mean, as humans, if you're strong enough to deal with all of the scrutiny and maybe the aggression, you, you know, because a lot of people weren't and they suffered even more, I would gather, uh, because, yes. but but if you are strong enough to deal with all of that, you know you want love, you want companionship, right? You you want community. That's mm-hmm. uh, the natural human uh, behavior. And so, if if someone is 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 uh, willing and and you like them, you're going to hang out with them. You're going to be with them. Yes. It's so crazy to me. I mean, I'm a white, well, basically white. A lot of people, I've had experience where people don't look at me as white. I don't consider myself white, really. I'm Mediterranean. I'm darker-skinned, ethnic-looking, you know, Italian, though. And I I do benefit from, and you're a white guy, too. We benefit from the white privilege. Uh, I'm a heterosexual guy, and and given all of that privilege that I have, I still struggle day in and day out with life, right? Now, to have these extra burdens put on me as you had put on you, because people were scrutinizing you based on your your sexual orientation and uh, interracial interracial relationship, I must have. I mean, I don't know how the heck you weathered it.
2: Well, you just do. I mean, it's not a conscious effort every morning to say up and to get up and say, "I'm going to weather this." It's just life, right? And and you've combated by working on the positive things in your life and in society and trying to change things.
0: Well, don't you think, and you witness this, it, it breaks a lot of people.
2: Oh, it does. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Good people breaks them.
2: Yes. Well, one of the things is that you mentioned that, you know, as a white person, you, you have your trials and tribulations and pains and troubles as well. But a lot of people particularly, in the situation that's the most favored race or people at the time tend to feel better about themselves if they slam down on what they consider their lessers. Right. If it's so they become worse than elitist, it becomes a way to assuage their own pain is to inflict pain on someone that they consider lower than themselves.
0: Right. Right.
2: Because that- they get some sense of superiority and satisfaction in that, which I understand, but I don't understand.
0: Right. I mean, we all do it to a certain extent, I think, without even knowing oh,
2: it's, it. It's human, for sure, yes.
0: But, you know, when you start beating up people, or you start actively making uh, someone cry and feel terrible about themselves, psychologically and emotionally, yes. that's just, you know, that you're not a good, you're not behaving as a good person. No,
2: and it's not even something that would even have an inkling in my mind to do. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I don't understand how that infection happens and how it exacerbates as time goes by. I don't don't get it. It's so much more fulfilling, satisfying, comforting to not do that, to just be on the positive side of it, but...
0: Exactly, exactly, But some people
2: can't deal with that. Well, partially because they can't deal with themselves. So I think that's part of where it comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're getting into some really complicated areas here. Yeah. Uh, but
2: anyway, not, not I, I, the, those elements are floating around in the background of a lot of the second half of my book because of my dealing with the racial aspect and the AIDS aspect and, and just getting older and working and living in the
0: city. Yeah, you're in your 70s, early 70s now?
2: Yes, yes.
0: And um, I'll
2: actually be 75 in May.
0: 75 in May. Yes. Uh, and, you know, again, having the opportunity to, to put together this memoir, it, you know, what, what, uh, what did you come out with that you didn't have before in terms of insight, in terms of sense of self and the world?
2: Well, it's interesting. I, When I started it, I hadn't thought of doing it until literally the check fell out of that envelope. I literally hadn't thought of I've thought of writing, and I, I played around with maybe writing a novel and other things, but not a memoir ever I hadn't thought of. And uh, I literally wrote the first page and the last page because I knew where I wanted to go, and I knew where I wanted it to end. And so I wrote that last page and that last page is, if you read it in the book now, is the page I wrote that first day. Wow. It's, it just, I knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't set myself a journey to get there. And so I opened it up. It's not a, it's not a memoir that, that is set up like on August 14th the Wednesday at 2 p.m. I did this. It's not that at all. It's much more akin to having a conversation on the phone with you or, or talking to friends and reminiscing, which is why I called the book what I did. Uh, So I gave myself leeway that if I was remembering, it's basically in chronological order, but if I remembered something related to something I was writing about, I took a detour and talked about that for a bit, and then came back to the chronological story of my life.
0: Do you have it broken down into named chapters?
2: Yes. I I love that in books, so I, I did that.
0: Do do you have throughout. do you have any of the chapters names that you could share with us that could be sort of you know compelling? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, well, the chapter of my move to New York is is called the Merry New Land of Oz, <laughs> and I'm getting the book out right now to actually refresh my memory. Uh, my my reminiscences of my life, my youth in New Hampshire, is called pre-Broadway tryout. Um, Blind Dates and Commercial Interruptions (laughs) Birth birth of a Salesman (laughs) A Thousand and One Nights on the Town Don't Tell Mama I Worked with a Porn Star (laughs) I love it (laughs) Quiche and Condoms (laughs) (laughs) Travel in Wartime San Francisco Without Flowers in My Hair From Bleecker to Bourbon Street, which is about my time in New Orleans, which is fun. Uh, In my chapter on creating a show in tribute to the great songwriter, Jimmy Webb, the title, the chapter title is called Oh, What a Tangled Web with two B's. Mm -hmm. Um, Sweet Green Icing Lost in the Stars. Uh, Mojo's dum dum bullets juleps and wishes uh, everyday life everyday death the white sheep of the family
0: huh.
2: um, and let's all go to the movies is the final chapter
0: oh i love them great titles great titles again folks we're talking to our good friend jerry geddes here on Troubadours and rock on tours new york city director writer cabaret critic and activists, among other things. And he's just published his first memoir titled, Didn't I Ever Tell You This? And uh, where can people find it?
2: I was just going to say, the the book was published by Premium Book Publishers. And it's available on my website, which is jerrygeddes.com, G-E-R-R-Y-G-E-D-D-E-S.com. And it has been available on Amazon, but right now Amazon is causing me nightmares and headaches so it's not available at the moment uh it's a long story but somehow they think that i've already published a book that was banned for content and so they're not allowing me to publish although they've had it and sold it and it sold very well in its first couple of weeks right over the holidays they decided that it was i was not who i said i was and took the book off their pages so i'm working with the publisher to get it back on and it will be soon, I hope, but right now it's only available through the website.
0: Yeah, go direct. Go to go to the website. Yeah. And uh, any, we only have a few minutes left. Are any uh, productions coming up?
2: I, I did a series for a number of years, uh, pre and post COVID, called "Fabulous First Fridays." Right. That's what, I, that's what I was of thinking of. And having some of the best people in new york cabaret who don't necessarily get to do their own shows come and do a couple of songs each usually in relation to either a story i'm telling or a situation i'm so i do spoken word stuff between the songs and then i consider them my illustrators and they do songs to illustrate the stories that i tell Um, and so we had a very successful one last year in tribute to jimmy webb that ran for normally it's one one shot only but we did that over three months and it it was very successful um so we're bringing that back plus i'm working with a wonderful singer named lisa vigiano at a new club that's rather elegant and if you came to the city we'd definitely go there so you could see it it's called chelsea table and stage and it's a real old style nightclub so it doesn't fit every show but it's a great space if the show is right for it has a spiral staircase coming down into the room, beautiful lighting, great restaurant. It's it's a really nice place. Excellent. On a, on a different level than Pangaea, which is a really funky village, edgy cabaret, and a very elegant surrounding.
0: You know, this weekend, my wife and I are coming into the city. Uh, we're, we're staying at the Roxy.
2: Oh, wow, I was there to see a great jazz person. Uh, Named Mark G Meadows a couple of weeks ago, actually.
0: Yeah, I hear they have a great jazz club there. Yeah,
2: they do. I, he was at the upstairs because he had so many people coming; they could it it burst the the walls of the downstairs, so they moved him upstairs to a bigger room, uh, their restaurant room. But uh, yeah, the the club is called Django. Right. So it, it, it's a nice room as well. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, when we're there, I'll message in you, if you're around. Maybe we can uh, meet somewhere. Yeah. But. You know, the the twenty twenty four year ahead of us. Last thing I'm asking you for this particular conversation, Jerry. What uh, what are you hoping for? Uh,
2: <laughs> the disappearance of Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> Me um, too. <laughs>
2: um, rational, intelligent human responses to what's happening in the Middle East. I sound like a Miss America contestant saying I want peace on theirs.
0: No, (laughs) (laughs) no, no.
2: (laughs) But those things are just almost overwhelmingly uh, almost incomprehensible. And the fact that it's still happening after all this time and that so many people still follow that great big lie it's rather depressing and,
0: uh, yeah, you're talking about, to, you're, to, you're talking about 45 help. number 45. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah that, that's actually the first time I've said the words, Donald Trump, I think in two, in six years, I usually say 45 or the disgraced former president or things like that. I don't, I don't even want to say the name, but,
0: uh, yeah, I hope you're right. I yeah. hope, I hope he de- I hope he does go away this year. Uh, but, and on a
2: personal level, I'm looking forward to doing more exciting things in theater. And I, I did start the novel that I was thinking about before this book. Now that I published one, I've got the itch. So I've started an, a vampire novel. And I'm about halfway through it. So
0: Excellent. We'll talk about that when you're ready. Yes. <laughs> so, Jerry, thank you so much for talking well, with us on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Thank you for being
2: such a supportive friend. And thank you for every week when you make things more accessible that some people might not know about. I think you do a great thing.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that, but it's my distinct pleasure to, to know you and to know all the people that in some way, shape or form, uh, even if it's just a little bit through the program, it makes my life better. So thank, thank you, sir. Thank you.
2: And thank you and uh, have a great year. And I hope, I hope we get to see each other this weekend. That would be exciting.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too.
2: I can hand deliver a book to you. Oh, that would
0: be sweet. <laughs> Yeah. That way I can
2: describe it for you. Yes, that
0: would be nice. No pressure. But when we're out there, I'll message in if if it works, we'll get together.
2: Yeah. It's Manhattan. I can get anywhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So,
2: yes. All right. So thank you for your continued support. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again.
0: Yeah, me too. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: See the sun come shining through for you Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear may be ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? find that life is still worthwhile if you just Someone to live for, beg, steal, and die for Eat humble pie for Someone to fly to the moon and the sky for Someone to dance with, laugh with, and cry for Still worthwhile if you just smile.
0: The Seasons. What is more powerful and with supreme substance? Purity or depravity? How should one live this life? An absolute pursuit of the former? or chasing and dancing with the latter of the two? Is this an oversimplistic dualism being juxtaposed within the construct of the living? Am I too far gone to understand the more nuanced and complex ways of this life? Can one be forgiven Who sits in judgment? What are the rhyme and reason? (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. episode 557 of Troubadours and Raconteurs with yours truly E.W. Conundrum Demure I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Jerry Geddes and these musical artists Thelonious Monk Sacri Ciori Tawanda Susprick Joachim, Takuya Kuroda, and Corey King, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.